it's in the shadow of genetically engineered crops, right? People are immediately suspicious of this because genetic engineering has become so politically controversial. So we were trying early on to figure out, okay, how could we do this new technology in a way that it would not come off as this profit-mongering thing that's going to hurt everybody? And most people who were involved in it were academics because there wasn't really much of a profit to be made by this thing. Welcome to another episode of GMO Watch. I'm your host, Emily Journey. I'm curious about GMOs and why I choose to eat organic and non-GMO foods. My guests and I are going to break down the hype from the facts around GMOs in our food so that you can come to your own conclusions about what you want to eat. My guest today is Dr. Fred Gould. Dr. Gould is the director of the Graduate Training Program on Agricultural Biotechnology at North Carolina State University. He's also the university's co-director of the Genetic Engineering and Society Center. As an entomologist, Dr. Gould studies the sustainable use of insect-resistant crops and genetically engineered agricultural pests. One of my goals is to make scientists and what they have to say relatable to people like myself who are just going about their regular shopping routine, looking at labels and ingredients and making decisions about what they eat. You are a a highly respected scientist. I hope so. (laughs) You are. I mean, I have in my notes here that the National Academy of Sciences selected you to chair a study Mm -hmm. covering the risks and benefits of GMOs. Did I get that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you came out that GMO foods have no greater risk of cancer or other health conditions than foods without GMOs. That's what right. was the conclusion. Right. Well, we have to be careful. You know, this is that whole thing about doing sciences. So we said that we found no substantiated evidence that there was that effect. But, you know, recognize that if eating GMOs caused you to live two years less or caused you to live two years more, We'd never know. In the same way, you know how people talk about, oh, the Mediterranean diet and this diet. And the keto diet. I mean, it's very hard to find subtle differences just because we're human beings and we, we are not experimental animals, right? Right. We are out of control. Right. <laughs> so that's <laughs> not going to happen, right? So the best we can do is look at all the information that's available to us. The report that you're talking about was published in 2016, so it's a bit dated right now. Not, you know, in terms of the crops, that the food that you eat, it's about the same as it was. And there are a couple of new things that we could talk about, but mostly it's the same as it was. And we were careful to think, okay, well, what could be missing in the data? So we looked at the studies very carefully, and we found some problems with some of the studies. It's not like we just give this carte blanche to, oh, everything's great. We wanted to be a different voice in that. So we looked at everything, we hope, with fresh eyes. To, and we looked at some of the studies that would have said that there were problems, you know, that it really would be bad for your health, that cancer rates would double, all those kind of things. Yeah. Well, that sounds outlandish just on the surface, that cancer rates would double. You know, when you're concerned about something and somebody feeds into that, you know, if it's part of you're already concerned, right? You don't trust the government. I'm going to raise my hand 
for that one. I don't trust the government, just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, well, I mean, these are big things. You know, one thing I always point out to people that in China, they have almost 100% genetically engineered cotton. None of their rice or their corn is genetically engineered. The Chinese government really likes the idea of genetic engineering. And I know researchers there and stuff, but the Chinese populace doesn't trust the government. There have been these scares, you know, with foods in China that have, have been adulterated. And so there's a lack of trust. And apparently there's a big Greenpeace movement in China. You know, we always think of them, you know, the top down government. But there's a lot going on in countries like that and that issue of trust in the government. So one of the goals in all of this and in our study is, you know, to figure out how to be trustworthy. How do you gain the trust of people? It's like me. If you ask me, how does my cell phone work and does it give me cancer? I can say I don't think so, but I have no way to judge if my cell phone is going to give me cancer. I have to trust somebody. And so I think that's that question of, you know, if you're going to do something, you want to build trustworthiness into it. And actually, one of the things in our committee was that we invited all of the people who have expressed these concerns about cancer and other things, as well as people who really hate them because of the monopolistic kind of issues. We invited all of those people to come to the National Academy of Sciences and talk about what they were concerned about. So that right when we started the study, we'd see these are the concerns and try to address what people are worried about, not just do a report. Anyway, I, I mean, it's always so hard to gain trust. And there are always people who don't like what you're saying who will try to take away that trust. Yeah, there's always a benefit on some side, right? So yeah. there's money to be made in every angle. <laughs> <laughs> I truly believe that. I like what you said about resistance to some technologies that are small, hard to understand, and powerful. And in terms of like you were using a Spider-Man oh. <laughs> example, yeah. right? So the spider is small, hard to understand, powerful consequences, you know, to Spider-Man. So <laughs> right, 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 right. And you GMOs know. are like that. They're small. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hard to understand and powerful. Right, right. Right? Insects are like that too, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> but that was the whole yeah. thing with Spider-Man was that, you know, before the year 2000, the spider had been exposed to radiation, which is also small, right? And that's what everybody, you know, with the atomic bomb up in, you know, in the 1960s and everything. So Spider-Man got his powers from something nobody understands, right? atomic power and the spider somehow gave that atomic power to him. Oh, that's funny. In that earlier comic book version. Yeah. And you could see, you know, it's, it's sort of a demarcation line where it switches. So if you ask any high school kid, what was the spider that bit Spider-Man? It was one that had been genetically engineered and it transferred genes. But if you ask old people like me, right? It was the radiation. It was the radiation. So we've just switched from one scary technology to another scary technology. That makes sense to me. You're an entomologist and the science of insects. And I remember listening to you in an interview talk about genetic engineering with insects in order to reduce the use of pesticides. And is that a real thing? Yeah, so it is a real thing. 
and it is not without controversy. So genetically engineered crops, right? All these huge companies have been involved in that. It's a real profit motive. And, you know, that came off and it was sort of Monsanto, right? Pushed it on people. And then all of a sudden, you know, started to engineer insects for research purposes. Then it turned out, well, gee, maybe you could engineer insects so that they couldn't transmit diseases like dengue or malaria, right? So hmm, that sounds good. Or you could engineer insect pests to sort of basically get rid of their own populations to basically be their own little time bomb. So you release some of them into the field and they spread. And then after a while, all the insects die. So this is, again, a powerful, weird technology and it involves bugs and it you know, involves disease. And it's in the shadow of genetically engineered crops, right? People are immediately suspicious of this because it's, it, genetic engineering has become so politically controversial. So we were trying early on to figure out, okay, how could we do this new technology in a way that it would not come off as this profit-mongering thing that's going to hurt everybody? And most people who were involved in it were academics because there wasn't really much of a profit to be made by this thing. And so there was a lot more interaction with the public about it. But still, there's one small startup company that got involved in this, and they genetically engineered the mosquito that transmits dengue and also Zika virus. Years ago, they wanted to release these in Florida, and there was all this hue and cry, and it didn't happen. But actually, this spring, they have permission to release these. No way. This spring? Yeah. In Florida? Yeah. Probably sometime in May or so. Yeah. There's still some community people who are against it. And it's in the Florida Keys, but not in Key West, right? You know, I think (laughs) that wouldn't have happened. It's not just theory and not just laboratory stuff. So it's going to really happen. Mm-hmm. And the way it's applied, executed, is by releasing insects into the wild, and you can't right. take them back. Well, so it's an interesting thing. The ones that are being released as a curious approach. Are they right? magnetic? Doing... <laughs> <laughs> Just a thought. They're fluorescent. So you can see them in the dark. I would believe that. Is that true? Yes. Wow. It's a marker. In any event, I mean, there's all sorts of things that sound pretty bizarre, but are actually being done all the time. These insects that would be released, the females do not survive, but the males survive. So you release these males, and those males mate with females. They produce male offspring, but no female offspring. And if you keep doing that, keep releasing, you wind up with a population that has no females, and that's the end of it. I mean, that's the goal. I mean, this is much more complicated in the sense that it's not so easy to do this, of course. But if you stop releasing, after a while, those genes disappear. The next stage in that technology, which is really being funded by the Gates Foundation, mostly in a lab at Imperial College in London, is developing the mosquito that transmits malaria to get rid of its populations. But in that case, you release the insects and they push out these genes into a population, 
by a, a thing called gene drive. And it goes into the population after one release and it does stay and spread. So that's a different strategy. But you can imagine with that one that the Gates Foundation is funding, there's no business model for that, right? Because you make this thing and then you release it. That's the last time you ever could sell it, right? Because it's on its way. How am I going to make money off of that? Right. So obviously, there's a different motivation there than there was for Monsanto. Now, in terms of that other release that I mentioned in Florida, there, if you don't keep releasing them, they don't have an effect. So there is a somewhat of a sales kind of thing that could be done with those, perhaps. But, you know, all in all, it's not huge business in that way. For this release in Florida this spring, how quickly do you imagine that you would start seeing results? That's a good question. They apparently have a permit to do these releases over a two-year period. And my sense is it would take about six months to see the impact, right? Because you have to you know, wait until it moves itself into the populations. Unfortunately, unlike insecticides, you know, if all of a sudden there's a dengue outbreak in Florida, you know, this virus going through, you need to stop that immediately. You can't just all of a sudden say, okay, let me build a factory and release all these insects. It wouldn't work, but it's more of a preventive thing. And they've done these kind of tests in Brazil where they've done these releases and had some success. I have some questions about how, how feasible this is going to be, but we'll see for based on these testing. Do you have any concerns that the insect population would develop a resistance Mm. to the genetic engineering? Yes, I do. (laughs) Yeah. As a matter of fact, there is even already evidence that insects can develop a resistance to these kinds of technologies. You know, some people worry that, oh, they're going to take over the world. And other people feel like once they get out of the laboratory, they're going to just plonk. So in terms of this specific thing in Florida, the mechanism by which this works, there can be selection for genes that don't let the female be affected by it. And so if that happens, you'll wind up with a population where you release all of these, but then the males and females survive. So it is very possible. And they'll find that out in doing these experiments. Does that seem risky, creating a crazy monster mosquito? Yeah. To me, it wouldn't be a crazy monster mosquito. (laughs) It would be the same old crappy mosquito that's biting you. Okay. So not something that would introduce new problems. I don't think so. Again, you know, all of these things are things that the regulatory agencies need to be careful about, right? They need to think about it. And I think they have been concerned. One of the concerns is that the strain they release may be different in whether it is resistant to insecticides or whether it transmits a new disease or something like that. So there are some of these questions that come up. I mean, there's this idea that I've heard discussed about just from other scientists who who feel strongly against GMOs, genetic engineering, you know, when it comes to crops and insects, this idea of unforeseen consequences and for that being kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack and that it's not really possible to account for all of the variations, all of the possibilities, and that that alone is enough reason to not go down these paths. Right. How do you feel about that? You know, one of the questions is what is the cost of inaction? 
right? So right now in Florida, people pay their tax dollars to spray for mosquitoes, spray insecticides. So you could, of course, ask, well, what is the consequences of all that spraying? And mosquitoes become resistant to one insecticide, so they use a new insecticide. You know, so how does that affect your children compared to this technology that just focuses on one insect and should have no other effects, especially because that insect, that mosquito called the Aedes aegypti, or the yellow fever mosquito, is invasive. It's not a native U.S. species. So it's not like you're taking something out of the environment that was always there. So, I mean, these are good questions, and you have to ask them carefully and come back with the evidence. But as you say, you'll never know for sure. There are a lot of these questions that, that we can't answer. But again, you know, if you go and think about Africa and malaria. It's devastating. How bad would the impact of getting rid of this mosquito on the ecosystem be compared to the loss of life, right? And then you have to ask, you know, what happens if we wipe out malaria? What does that do to the wealth of people? Does, you know, as some people have said, malaria is bad because it kills people, but it's worse because it, you know, takes away people's energy, right? You know, they have a hard time making a livelihood if you're tired all the time. So those are, you know, complicated issues. And I think getting at the data is really important and being as upfront as possible about what these consequences are. And I think things that bother conservation people in the United States or in Europe are different from things that affect African people who are in a different situation. So I see bugs that I didn't see when I was younger. A certain time of year, we get stink bugs. They come in the house. They're creepy. <laughs> and I never had this problem, even as early as you know, 10 years ago, right? This was not a thing for me. And then also these different type of ladybugs that are not as cute and pretty as the ones I remember from my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. They, they look different. Right. I don't even know what those are called. <laughs> And I see those and I don't really know why they're here. I'm just grasping at straws. And this is like, so I blame things like, oh, this is because of pesticides. It's because of genetic engineering. Do you know what's causing strange things? Well, I, I do know that global trade is one of the big issues. So we have one mosquito that going after in Florida has a very close relative that's in the same genus, right? They're closely related that we now have in the United States called the tiger mosquito. Where are you located? I, I don't... I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. But the tiger mosquito is an interesting, it has little white stripes on its legs. You'll see it around. It's active during the day. And uh, that's here because of the trade in used tires. So, and so the water in the tires? The water in the tires. Oh, wow. Right? So think about that. I mean, of course, these insects are coming around through this kind of trade, or, you know, they were brought in in order to control one insect, but they also are a problem, you know. So there's a lot of that. And I would say, you know, often we think that they come from Europe or they come from Asia and they come to the United States, but we also send them to Asia and <laughs> Africa and Europe. We just sent an insect to Africa called the fall armyworm. It's always been a problem in U.S. and Central and South America, but never in the old world. Seems like because of global trade, it wound up in Africa, and now it's spread throughout Africa, and it's spreading to Asia. So that's my answer to your question. 
It's not about genetic engineering, but it is definitely about global trade. That totally makes sense to me. I know that's not a new thing because I like birds and I like the black-capped chickadee. Yes. Which is a much prettier bird than the English sparrow. (laughs) But you don't see the black-capped chickadee as much as the common English sparrow. And then from what I understand, the black-capped chickadee is native to North America. And the English sparrow was brought over on boats, right? Is that right? Yeah. Well, I don't know who brought up the sparrow, but that was a long time ago. But I mean, (laughs) honeybees are not native either, right? So they were brought over for honey production. And you may know the gypsy moth, defoliates trees and stuff. Somebody brought that over because they were experimenting with something to replace silkworms, right? They were going to try to start a industry and then some of them escaped. That person felt very badly. So this is not new. This is not new. But I think I would say probably that the rate has gone up because of all the global trade. So it's not something that should be ignored. Yeah. There are problems resulting. Right. And of course, the U.S. does things, you know, at its ports and stuff and has a whole group of people from the USDA that inspect cargoes coming in. But think about all that's coming in. It's so hard to keep track on those things. It would be unrealistic to think that nothing is going to get through. So tell me if this is realistic. I have a vision of this world where every crop and everything were just 100% organic. And that, that's the direction that we go with everything, that we don't use pesticides and that everything is organic. Is that crazy? I mean, is that even possible? Why wouldn't we want to do that? Help me understand that. Okay. So people have differing opinions about this. And some people point to the idea that organic agriculture wouldn't be as productive and we'd need to use more acres. So we'd have to cut down more trees and grow more in order to do that. But the other thing I'd want to get back to is think of what do you mean when you say organic, right? We have organic standards. You can only put that label on your produce if it's organic. That's standard. Yeah. So that's the standard. And that standard means it can't be genetically engineered. That's out, right? But it doesn't eliminate all pesticides. It eliminates all synthetic pesticides. So there are pesticides that can be used by organic farmers, and they use them a lot that are derived from actual other organisms. So there's a group of compounds called spinosids or whatever that are used. You know, So basically, people spray an organic farm and kill insects using that, but it's just a different way. So I just want to make clear yeah, what organic means. Oh, right? see, I didn't know that. But I mean, there are real advantages. I mean, you know, we you look at nitrogen runoff from conventional plantings. And yeah, if you can improve that. So I would say, you know, organic has captured people's understanding, you know, like that's, you know, everybody sees organic is going to be healthier. But there's also sort of ecological agriculture or agroecology, which is more, you know, focused on not so much the idea of, is it an organic pesticide or is it a different pesticide, but just to decrease the use of those things and to make it more ecologically sustainable. But I don't think that has the panache that organic has. You know, people don't go to the grocery store looking for ecologically sustainable 
but I was in Moscow, Idaho. And there's a grocery store that says, you know, basically they rate their produce based on six different factors. And some of them are how locally grown it is and th- other things like that, you know, and how, how long the person's been cultivating in that one area to increase the richness of the soil. We can't all do that, but it is useful. We had the new Secretary of Agriculture coming in, and he came down to my university, NC State, with the USDA to have a conference on coexistence of genetically engineered agriculture and non-genetically engineered agriculture, right? So the problem is that genes from the genetically engineered crops will get into the conventional crop or that somebody who sprays their crop with glyphosate, right, which is, this is Roundup, genetically engineered plants can tolerate that, but the others don't, you know, so well, if farmers are near each other, right, it's going to drift and it's going to cause problems. So, you know, Tom Vilsack, very big person, right, major player. And it was so interesting because there are all these people who want to fight. And he started the conference saying, I don't want to talk about science, (laughs) You know, I don't want you to prove that your science is better than their science. I want to come up with a diverse and flourishing agriculture in the United States. And he was saying to me that flourishing would be to have diversity and to allow people to choose the kind of food they want. We don't tell people that they can't buy a Mercedes Benz or they can't buy a this or that. Give them the choice of foods. Let's make it work as effectively as possible. I thought, wow. So I'm glad to have him back. Not everybody might be, but it's sort of an attitude of we all like to have choice. So you can have choice. Some of the choices you make may be stupid, you know, in that. Or more expensive. But it depends on, you know, if you feel good, if you like it, right? I think that that's an important piece. So I'll take that to his kind of thing. And, and the fact that we have now have a law, a federal law about labeling foods, right, that are genetically engineered. And when we did that report in 2016, our committee said, you know, we found no substantiated evidence that these foods would be bad for your health. And the USDA and the FDA has a man that they don't mark any foods with a warning, you know, like they have an allergy warning on some things, right? Well, that makes sense, right? Because they could be allergenic and there's data on it. So they can label that, but they can't label something if there's not a utility to that information in terms of people's health. So for years, the FDA was arguing, wait, we're not going to label this stuff because it's not dangerous. So the FDA can't regulate that. But when we were doing this, we said to the FDA, you say that, but we write down on every you know little ingredient thing, if it was natural color or artificial color, or if it was you know artificial flavor or natural, right? Are artificial flavors dangerous? And I didn't know this. They said to me, well, that wasn't us. <laughs> that was Congress. People were worried about these artificial ingredients. So Congress said, you got to label it. And Congress also said, you know what? If fruit comes from Mexico, you got to label where it comes from. I, I love it, right? Because when I get a cantaloupe from Guatemala, I know it came from Guatemala. I like to think about it. But I mean, not good for the environment, but we know where our fruit comes from because apparently Congress said that. It's not that fruit coming from Guatemala is not safe. So the FDA wasn't in charge of saying 
label that. It was uh, more of a congressional kind of thing. In response to consumers. People wanting to know, or whatever it was, somehow or other, or politicians wanting to think that, oh, well, maybe they'll buy American. You know, I don't, I don't know. Honestly, I don't really know. But it wasn't FDA saying, don't trust it if it comes from Guatemala. And of course, there is profit in all this, as you said. Companies really felt this would really impact them, right? If they didn't label, they couldn't sell in Vermont. This led to this big turmoil, and they came up with a federal regulation that they will label. But of course, they were able to put this off forever and ever and ever. But now it's coming due. And if you go to the grocery store, you'll see more and more things that are labeled. I do see that. So there is that GMO-free kind of labeling. But there is now appearing required labeling. So in the next couple of years, you will see. But it doesn't say that it's genetically engineered. It's called something like bio-engineered. Or they were going to have a little label that had a fancy little sun on it, right? Sounds natural. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, you know, I mean, all to say that these things are coming and you will be able to see them. But some of it is really funny because I was just in the grocery store buying cereal. And if you look at Cheerios and, of course, made of whole grain oats, right? Good for your heart and all that kind of thing. Well, if you look on the box of those, at least in supermarkets in North Carolina, it says no GMOs. But if you look at the other Cheerios now that they have out, some are chocolate and some are this, that, and the other in the coated. Well, they actually have a label on them that says this contains some genetically engineered ingredients or bioengineered ingredients. And so why is that? Is because the regular old Cheerios are made out of oats. And there are no genetically engineered oats in the United States or anywhere else. So that label is true, but it's kind of like, little bit fake. They didn't have to do anything special except put the label on there. Right. It's like when you buy water and it says no fat, right? Fat free. So is sugar. (laughs) Fat free. You got it. You got it. But you'll see that they used to have the label GMO free on the regular Cheerios. They didn't have the label of contains bioengineered ingredients on the other ones, but that's moving in that direction. So you'll see that Campbell's soups and all of those things will start mentioning that. So we'll start seeing those labels and people will make decisions. It will become clear whether people care about this, right? Whether they care if there's genetically engineered ingredients in the food that they buy. It'll be interesting. I'm really interested in seeing how that plays out. Right. Yeah. Like how many people look at labels and how much does it matter? Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. You know, the first company that ever came out with genetically engineered product was the Flavor Saver Tomato. They engineered a tomato so it would stay on the shelf longer, that it wouldn't go bad. (laughs) The problem was there was a bunch of genetic engineers who engineered this into a terrible tasting tomato. Oh, it was was just bad. (laughs) So whatever it was, but they put the label on it. They wanted everybody to know that this was new and improved, right? So recently, you can go to the website, look for pink pineapple. No way. And it's made by, I think, Del Monte. And it's genetically engineered to be pink. And it is now being sold as a genetically engineered pineapple. 
How much do you pay for a pineapple in the store? I go to Costco. Not much. Yeah. <laughs> right. Much. Well, these pink pineapples cost $49. <gasps> you know what those are used for? $50 drinks, cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, one of our graduate students bought one of these. He's very excited about genetic engineering. That is funny. Yeah, I'm going to have to look that up. You have been generous with your time and experience. And, and right, so good. thank you so much. Nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of GMO Watch. If you love the episode, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This helps other listeners know what you think about our show, and they'll share GMO Watch with more people like you. As reviews come in, I'll read them and give you a shout out. So make sure you add your Instagram handle to your review. I'll see you next week.